0: This week, a discussion on how the Civil War tested the limits of the U.S. Constitution. Penn State Professor Rachel Sheldon explains.
1: One of the wonderful things about Abraham Lincoln is his ability to sort of capture all of the key points of what's going on in that particular moment, uh, both sort of in, in general terms, but also constitutionally.
0: More with Professor Rachel Sheldon of Penn State in a moment.
1: So, up to this point in the course, we've been talking a lot about the degree to which the Constitution did not simply take the form of a written legal document, right, but rather as a set of ideas about the structure and function of American governance. And among these key ideas was a reliance on union, particularly those mutual bonds of nationhood between states, often known as comedy, and the production of Compromise, right? The Constitution is a commitment to compromise. And because compromise was baked into the Constitution, so too was the evil of slavery because there were consistently compromises between slaveholding and non-slaveholding states about slavery. Because the framers at the Constitutional Convention in Philadelphia were so committed to the idea of compromise as part of the scaffolding of American governance... They had drawn a path forward that always was going to accommodate slavery, particularly as the nation became more and more committed to slavery. So over the course of the 1850s, you'll remember there were lots of compromises over slavery. There was the Compromise of 1850, the Kansas-Nebraska Act. In some ways, Dred Scott is considered a compromise. What else happened in Kansas? But this all leaves neither side fully satisfied, right? Northerners are unhappy. Southerners are unhappy. And so by the late 1850s, the sort of failures of these compromises had raised the level of tension in the nation to a fever pitch, making it even more difficult to find compromise over the issue of slavery. So this week, we are talking about what happens when compromise fails, when the Constitution does not provide answers to what to do about this slavery question. And when slaveholders refuse to compromise, because they're the ones who refuse to compromise with Republicans, and instead choose to secede from the Union, what happens next constitutionally? Now, the main argument of this lecture, as you can tell, from the title, is that we should think about the Civil War as a constitutional crisis. But what do I mean exactly by constitutional crisis? Well, if slavery caused the Civil War, and we know that it caused the Civil War, right? We know this from our readings, both from the past few weeks, but also um, for today. If If the Civil War was caused by slavery, the war itself was fundamentally a constitutional conflict, a contest over what the Constitution was and what it meant. The Constitution had implemented the system of government based in the sovereignty of the people, right? This sovereignty was expressed and balanced in many ways through elections, through the separation of powers, through federalism, through all the structures that had been built into the Constitution. But to function in this way, the Constitution had to provide this possibility for rule of the people at large, operating through their representatives in government, right? So in order for the Constitution to survive, it had to have this structure work. And the Civil War is going to be a great test of this idea, that sovereignty of the people could not only exist, but last indefinitely, permanently thrive. So the 11 states that attempted to leave the Union and form their own confederacy dedicated to slavery were fundamentally disrupting the constitutional order. Conflict over slavery had produced a constitutional crisis. And so this crisis is going to pose three interrelated questions to Americans. First, would the Union, the very basis of Constitutional governance in the period before the Civil War survive. Would the Union survive? Would the Constitution survive? Second, how could Americans fight a civil war within the bounds of their Constitution, particularly when the Constitution did not offer clear solutions for how to conduct a war that was a civil war, that was a war among people within the nation? And third, what would the future of American democracy look like if the United States won the war? How would the United States continue forward if it won? Today we're going to start to talk about the first two problems and then we're going to pick up the very complicated answers to the third for the remainder of the semester. Now as we discuss these questions a few things to keep in mind. First, For the most part, constitutional conflict did not take place in the Supreme Court. This has been a theme of the class thus far, so this probably doesn't surprise you, but the war's constitutional problems were primarily engaged by the President and Congress. The Supreme Court played a pretty insignificant role in the Civil War, and there are many reasons for this, uh, but we will talk more about them on Thursday. This is a reminder that constitutionalism and constitutional interpretation, particularly in the 19th century, is often found outside the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court does not control constitutional interpretation. Second, there were often no answers to be found to the crisis in the Constitution itself. There were no clear provisions for what the Constitution meant in case of secession, for how you were supposed to behave in relationship to secession. And as the war went on, Congress and the president made decisions whose legality under the Constitution may have been disputed, but became constitutional because of what Lincoln called the friction and abrasion of war. So the Civil War in that sense is what historian Cynthia Cynthia Nicoletti calls a trial by battle. Right? The legality of constitutional problems evolves over the course of the Civil War and is related to whether the Union can survive on the battlefield, whether the Union would have victories. So we're going to spend some time talking about all of these questions, but I want to start where we left off in our last class, which is talking about the election of 1860. Now, it's important to recognize that the election of 1860 actually itself did not produce a constitutional crisis. You would almost think that that's where the constitutional crisis began. Certainly, recent events have suggested that. But in fact, the actual conduct of the election of 1860 was relatively crisis-free. The election of 1860 featured four candidates, right? We have here John Bell of the Constitutional Union Party, The Constitutional Union Party was a newer party in 1860, and it was dedicated to the Constitution and the Union. In fact, its platform was so short that pretty much all it was for was the Constitution and the Union. Then you had two Democrats who had split, right? So you have Northern Democrats who tended to support Stephen Douglas, uh, who was someone we know very well from what? Fade a little louder for us often? The debate with Lincoln. The debate with Lincoln. What else? What else is he responsible for? <laughs> CJ? Compromise of 1850. Compromise of 1850, right? Kansas Nebraska Act. He'd been a very prominent member of Congress for many years. Uh, and so you might think that he would appeal to Southerners, particularly because he had been one of these folks who had created more compromise that allowed Southerners to get into the territories. Uh, But in fact, by the time of the election of 1860, Southerners had pretty much abandoned him, especially people in the Lower South. Instead, they tended to support this man, John Breckinridge, uh, who tended to be more stringent about slavery and therefore got the uh, support of Lower South men. And then finally, we have Abraham Lincoln of the Republican Party. And you'll remember that the Republican Party was specifically dedicated to the idea that slavery ought to be restricted in the territories. Contrary to what decision? Terence? Uh, the decision that resulted in the creation of the 3630 line. They they believed in the thirty six thirty line, right? They had been in favor of the compromise, uh, the Missouri Compromise of eighteen twenty. Was it the six laws that came from the um, Mexican session and Texas Annexion? Not from the Compromise of eighteen fifty. They, the the thing that was supposed to restrict them, right, was the Dred Scott decision. Dred Scott was supposed to say, oh no, this can't even exist anymore. You you have to make sure uh, that. Uh, slaveholders can bring enslaved people into the territories. So Republicans arguing that they were limited uh, in terms of what they could bring to the territories, that the territories ought to be free, was in direct conflict with the Dred Scott decision. So we have these four candidates. Uh, Abraham Lincoln is going to win a plurality of the votes uh, and a wide majority of the Electoral College. You can see here that Lincoln's... uh, Lincoln's popular vote was just a little bit under 40%, but he won a a great majority of the Electoral College. Uh, And he won this even despite, even if all of these folks had gotten together, both Democrats and the Constitutional Union Party, they would not have won uh, the Electoral College. Lincoln is going to have a commanding victory there. Now, you know, this is important to think about in the context of the 19th century uh, and not in our 21st century viewpoint. Because remember, there's no provision in the Constitution that says you have to have a two-party system, right? There were four parties, and this was pretty normal in the 19th century. In fact, almost all of the elections before this one featured more than two candidates for the presidency. Eight featured more than two candidates of the previous 10 elections, and at least four candidates in four different elections before this. And so this is important to understand, because there was no real contestation at all that Lincoln had won the election. Nobody said, no, Lincoln didn't win fairly. The vast majority of Southerners fully accepted that Lincoln had legitimately won the election. Constitutionally, he was the victor, and in fact, Lincoln's election was not particularly surprising to people. Many had predicted it because they understood that these candidates had split in all of these various ways, and that the population of northern states was going to create this kind of circumstance. Now, this doesn't mean that southerners were happy with Lincoln's election. They were not happy, they were very irritated. Uh, Of course, a president who was dedicated to the idea that everything they believed in was wrong was something that slaveholders feared. But at the same time, his election does not immediately produce war. Why? Well, you remember that until the 20th century, presidents did not take office until March. So there was a lot of time between when Lincoln was elected and when he was going to go ahead and take the presidential seat. And so the months following Lincoln's election are going to feature numerous efforts at compromise to fulfill that ideal of compromise that many Americans understood to be the heart of the Constitution. Remember that Americans had been compromising for many years on the issue of slavery, and so this was a similar kind of situation in which many thought that they ought to be able to find a compromise. So now I'm going to spend a little time talking about what is called the secession winter. So those five months after Lincoln's election uh, and going up into April 1861 when the war uh, is triggered by the firing on Fort Sumter. I want to reiterate here that this is the secession winter, not the succession winter. Those are two different things, secession and succession, right? Right. Secession, leaving the Union, in this case, right? Succession, what comes next, or a show on HBO. It's a totally different thing. So make sure that when you're thinking about secession, you're using the correct term. So Lincoln's election does not immediately produce secession of all of the southern states that are going to join the Confederacy. In fact, the only state that immediately begins the process is South Carolina. And this, of course, is not the first time that South Carolina threatens secession, right? Uh, Can anybody think of another example? Austin? The nullification crisis. Nullification crisis. Very good. They'd also threatened secession after the Compromise of 1850. They were very unhappy with the provisions uh, that were supportive of non-slaveholders. So within a few weeks of Lincoln's election, South Carolina is going to initiate this process of trying to secede from the Union, On December 17th, 1860, delegates who had been nominated to a secession convention voted for secession. December 20th, they vote. December 17th, they gather. Uh, They're going to explain their reasons for why they are seceding from the Union. And I want you to pay close attention to the wording here, because it stated definitively their intention not just to leave the United States, but to dissolve the United States, right? The Union subsisting between South Carolina and other states under the name of the United States of America is hereby dissolved. In some ways, this is an acknowledgement of the problem of secession, right? If you withdraw from the Union, does the Union continue to exist? Lincoln is going to make the same kind of claim once he is uh, going to give his inauguration in March. In general, the idea is that the Constitution only functions through comedy, right? Through this compromise framework. And if one state withdraws, then the union is dissolved. And this is echoed in almost all of the newspapers in South Carolina in the period uh, following the December 20th uh, vote. And so they're going to say that the union is dissolved. This language makes the case that South Carolina's consent is required to be in the union. This is not something that Lincoln and other Republicans are going to accept, but this is the argument that they are going to make. Now, South Carolina is doing this, but at the same time, Federal politicians in Washington had gathered to try in some way to create compromise uh, to stave off civil war. And just as Congress started to gather in December 1860, James Buchanan is going to deliver his fourth message to Congress. So just to set the scene, remember that this is not the new Congress elected in November 1860. This is the old lame duck Congress that is going to meet December to March. And then the new Congress is not scheduled to meet until the following December. And James Buchanan is going to send in his uh, message to Congress, not go and deliver a State of the Union like we think of today. That's not in the Constitution. You're not required by the Constitution to go and deliver a speech. So he sends in this message to Congress. And Buchanan's message to Congress uh, is about as confusing as it could possibly be. Now, you don't need to uh, go and read all of these uh, words that Buchanan offers, but just to give you a general sense of the things that he's trying to uh, explain. He, on the one hand, says that the federal government is organized in such a way, the Union and the Constitution are organized such a way, uh, that no state can legally leave the Union. It's not legal. It's not allowed under the Constitution. But at the same time, he's saying that the federal government has no power to stop anyone from leaving the Union. Right? So it's illegal under the Constitution, but I don't know how to get, get folks to stay. That's sort of the constitutional argument here. This message, while, you know, was pretty roundly criticized, especially by Republicans, really indicated the lack of clarity and ability of the Constitution to contain this moment, right? The Constitution is not clear on all kinds of things. Was secession legal? Buchanan didn't think so. But it doesn't say anything in the Constitution that secession is legal, How did one prevent a state from leaving the Union? The Constitution did not account for this. Now, Lincoln is going to disagree with Buchanan about what is constitutional and what is not, uh, but this indicates a real fear about what to do next and whether the Constitution could provide a path forward. So Buchanan says all this, uh, and at the same time, Congress comes together and says, okay, we're going to try to come up with some sort of solution. In the House, they create a committee of 13, which includes, uh, or sorry, a committee of 33, which is headed by Thomas Corwin of Ohio, uh, 33 states in the Union, one member of each state in the House. And then in the Senate, there's a committee of 13, which included several prominent political leaders, uh, among them Jefferson Davis, about to be made the president of the Confederacy, William Henry Seward, who was a runner-up to Lincoln in the Republican National Convention and soon to join Lincoln's cabinet, and this man, John Jordan Crittenden of Kentucky. Crittenden uh, had been a member of the Constitutional Union Party, so this was a moment made for him. right? He was all about this kind of compromise. He had followed after Henry Clay, the great compromiser from Kentucky, Uh, And he was one of the longest-serving politicians in Washington at this time. He was very much dedicated to the idea that there ought to be some sort of compromise to prevent civil war. And so he provides one of the most promising solutions to the situation, uh, a proposal that came to be known as the Crittenden Compromise. So I've listed all the measures here, uh, and it was a detailed plan, but the most important part of it was this one on top here, the extension of the Missouri Compromise line to the Pacific Ocean. So this is a compromise that suggests that the Missouri Compromise, this sacred compromise that so many believe was essential to the Constitution, should be re-implemented right, re-implemented so that there can be this balance between North and South. And if it were re-implemented, that this could create some sort of compromise between the people who are worried about slaveholders getting too much power or about anti-slavery men getting too much power. And this part down here, that no future amendment of the Constitution could change these amendments or authorize or empower Congress to interfere with slavery within any slave state was meant to suggest that this compromise will be final. We will not have any more uh, of this kind of difficulty between North and South. This is a bit naive in some ways because, of course, white Southerners had their eyes on all kinds of other areas south of the Missouri Compromise Line, Cuba, for example, Uh, But this is Crittenden's solution. Compromise seemed like the way to go, right? This seemed like a good way to approach the situation. uh, And this seemed like a good way to split up the territory. But the Committee of 13 was hamstrung from the start by a rule that they adopted that Republicans on the Committee and members of the Lower South like Jefferson Davis both had to agree to any kind of compromise. And Davis and others refused. This was not enough for them. So Crittenden's measures are going to fail in Congress, and in January, lower south states begin to leave the union one by one. Mississippi on January 9th, Florida on January 10th, Alabama on January 11th, Georgia on January 19th, Louisiana on January 26th, and Texas votes on February 1st, uh, to leave the Union, but their governor, Sam Houston, was a Unionist and so tried to prevent it from going forward so they don't actually leave uh, until March. These conventions of these Lower South states were even more explicit than South Carolina. And I've given you um, this to read for today because it really just gives you all of the reasons why secession is important to these folks. Um, So this is the Mississippi Ordinance of Secession. Uh, And you can see right from this part here, our position is thoroughly identified with the institution of slavery, the greatest, greatest material interest of the world. They're not messing around. They're telling you exactly why they are leaving. And again, they say that they are going to dissolve the Union. This is not just about leaving the Union. This is about dissolving the Compact. So once these seven states have seceded, they determine to create their new nation, and they meet in Montgomery in March 1861 to draft a new constitution for their new nation and to put a provisional government in place. Now, again, the Confederate Constitution indicates exactly what this conflict is all about. Because these men set up a Confederate Constitution very closely modeled on the U.S. Constitution, which you read for today, Uh, and it's a subject that we're going to be discussing more on Thursday. But some key provisions here. It explicitly protected the institution of slavery. Right, So it comes right out and says it. This is a country dedicated to slavery. It forbids protective tariffs and federal internal improvements. It limits the president to one six-year term. These are provisions that are thought of to be in support of states over the federal government. But it also gives the president a line-item veto. And then in the kicker. It forbids states from leaving the new Confederacy, right? Uh, This isn't in the U.S. Constitution, and so they're going to write it into the Confederate Constitution. One interesting thing about the Confederate Constitution that I think maybe means something to us in this class is that there is a provision for a Supreme Court of the Confederacy, but it's never organized. There's no operational Supreme Court uh, during the Civil War in the Confederacy. So they create this Constitution and then they start thinking about how they can pursue their greater goals and one of the most important parts of their greater goals is to bring in more slaveholding states. Because you remember uh, we have we have these states down here who have seceded But there were other states that had not yet seceded. Arkansas, Tennessee, North Carolina, and Virginia were states that were eventually going to join the Confederacy, but by March 1861, they had not yet seceded. And we are going to have four more states, the border states of Missouri, Kentucky, West Virginia. Uh, West Virginia is not going to be formed until the Civil War itself, but Maryland and Delaware uh, that are not going to leave the Union at all. And so... One of the things that they're thinking about as they're trying to put together this new government is how do we appeal to these other slaveholding states that would be very important to any kind of new Confederacy, particularly their economic benefits, right? And so they start thinking about how can we appeal? And one way they do this is they create a provisional government that has Jefferson Davis as president. We just heard about Jefferson Davis. He's on the Committee of 13. And Alexander Stevens of Georgia, both long-term members of the United States Congress, uh, both well-respected in places outside the South, both lukewarm about secession in December, not sure that they really want to join the Confederacy. Davis, remember, is on the Committee of 13, so he's interested, in theory, in some sort of compromise. Alexander Stevens of Georgia, he becomes vice president, but in December, he had been a little, well, I don't know if we really should be doing this. Uh, Stevens, interestingly, knew Abraham Lincoln from their time serving in Congress together, and so he had some sense of what Lincoln's actual views were. But so by the time they become the president and vice president of the Confederacy, they are 100% committed to the Confederacy, 100% committed to this new cause. But by, by selecting these folks as the provisional government, it's sending a message to these upper south states that we're going to be a reasonable nation. We're going to be a nation that you can join and feel comfortable with. It's not radical people. It's more moderate Uh, lawmakers. So, what happens next is that these states start thinking about secession again, right, but they are not out of the Union yet. So again we have the border south are these states up here, the upper south here, the lower south, or the deep south here, the lower south has seceded by March. Now, those other four states, or really the other 8 slaveholding states, are the subject of continued efforts at compromise. Because folks know that if, for example, Virginia and Tennessee decide that they're not going to go with the Confederacy, this would change the game quite a bit, and maybe there would be a possibility to bring the Lower South back into the Union. So in March and In in February and March, there are going to be continued efforts to try to bring these states along, both in the Confederacy and in the United States. And so one thing that happens is that in February, there are all kinds of folks who are organizing to try to create some sort of compromise, both in the north and in these upper south states. Uh, One big group of these folks is businessmen in New York. You remember we talked last week about how important those business connections were uh, in New York, and so they are very concerned about the possibility of secession turning into separation. Uh, So they're pushing for compromise. We've got politicians pushing for compromise, and ultimately... A bunch of these guys get together in Washington, D.C., in February, in what was known as the Washington Peace Conference. Uh, These are people from both the North and the South, delegates from both the North and the South, people that you would have been very familiar with, lots of congressmen and ex-congressmen, who get together to try to figure out some sort of compromise. Uh, and they spend several weeks doing this, and ultimately they determine that the Crittenden Compromise is actually a pretty good plan. It makes a little sense. It might actually work. And so they produce a plan that looks very similar to this, uh, and they send it on to Congress. Congress, not that receptive. It didn't work the first time. It wasn't accepted by the Lower South men, and so Congress is sort of saying to itself, well, you know, uh, I, think, I think this is a good idea to try to have some sort of compromise, uh, but in general, this particular approach is not going to work. And so, even though the Washington Peace Conference produces this interest in compromise on behalf uh, of these folks, Congress is going to go a slightly different direction. Ultimately, they're going to come together on an amendment known as the Corwin Amendment or the original 13th Amendment. How many of you have had heard of the original 13th Amendment before this class? Okay, so a few, a few. So the original 13th Amendment is very much the opposite of the 13th Amendment that we get passed. This amendment is short and simple right? It suggests that slavery will be permanent, right? Uh, So no amendment shall be made to the constitution which will authorize or give to Congress the power to establish or interfere within any state with the domestic institutions thereof, including that of persons held to labor or service by the laws of said state. This is very simple. We are not going to interfere with slavery where it exists, and there can be no amendment for this, So this original 13th Amendment is going to pass both the House and the Senate. It is going to pass the House by a vote of 133 to 65 and the Senate by a vote of 24 to 12, exactly two-thirds majority. And important to remember that this is going to pass both Houses of Congress, even though members of the Lower South had already left. Right? They were no longer in Congress. This is a serious effort on behalf of Republicans especially, though not all Republicans vote for it, to try to create some sort of compromise. A few other things to note about this amendment. First, it was the first amendment passed by Congress and sent to the states since 1804, which you remember was the, amendment, the 12th Amendment had revised the process of the Electoral College uh, in terms of thinking about vice president and president. Very important amendment because of the election of 1800, uh, but a pretty long time ago, right? 1804. Second... It was distributed, right? It was signed by the president, and you can see here, and uh, it signed by James Buchanan, March 2nd, 1861. Uh, and so it's sent to the states, and states began the process of considering ratification. And in fact, it was ratified almost immediately by three states, and later by two states. So there were states that had already passed this amendment as or ratified this amendment, and expected it to become law. The war is going to disrupt this, of course. So this is a serious attempt at constitutional compromise. It's also one that President-elect Abraham Lincoln fully supported, When Lincoln arrived in Washington in February, he's going to spend some time talking to congressmen and also going to the peace conference and supporting the efforts of folks to compromise. There was one thing he wouldn't compromise on, right? That's the territories, because the territories are what the Republican Party had run on in 1860, restricting slavery in the territories. But in terms of where slavery already existed, yes, Lincoln is on board with not interfering On March 4th, Lincoln is going to deliver his inaugural address, much less confusing uh, than James Buchanan. One of the wonderful things about Abraham Lincoln is his ability to sort of capture all of the key points of what's going on in that particular moment, uh, both sort of in, in general terms, but also constitutionally. And so his first inaugural address, which you read for today, and we'll talk more about on Thursday, uh, is going to lay out his constitutional vision for this particular moment. You can see in the first case that he says he has no constitutional ability to interfere with slavery as it exists in the States. He is not in control of any kind of power to constitutionally interfere with slavery. He makes a constitutional argument about union, about the importance of the union. He argues that the union is perpetual. What's the meaning of the word perpetual? What does he mean by perpetual? Whatever. Forever, right? It will exist forever. It will last forever. Very good. So he makes this argument that the union is intended to last forever, that it is not meant to be broken up. Unlike Buchanan, he says he's going to enforce the law. He's going to make sure that the law is abided by in the South, regardless of whether states have argued that they have left the union. He says secession is anarchy, right? It's the essence of minority rule. It is a full-on rejection of majority rule. It does not allow for democratic processes. And finally, importantly, he says that he supports the original 13th Amendment, that Corwin Amendment, uh, believing it already essentially in the Constitution. Constitution does not allow him to interfere with slavery where it already exists, so he says, fine, let's put it in a constitutional amendment. I'll support that. And I just want to pause and talk very briefly about the contours of this argument because it's really important. Lincoln is arguing that secession is illegal. If a state leaves the union, it fundamentally violates the Constitution. It is unconstitutional to secede. This is not universally accepted, but it's an argument Lincoln is making based on the idea that democracy cannot exist without majority rule. And if the United States is a democracy, which is up for debate, right? If the United States is a democracy, if people secede, then you no longer have a union. You no longer have majority rule. This is the argument that Lincoln is making. But Lincoln, who believed slavery was wrong, who was anti-slavery, not an abolitionist, but anti-slavery, the Constitution contained support and protection for the institution of slavery in the slaveholding states, something he could not do anything about under the Constitution. Lincoln's view was that the Union itself must be protected. He was interested in the idea of compromise. I don't know if my computer just went to sleep. There we go. Uh, He was interested in the idea of compromise. He believed that compromise was essential to the Union. He had been a supporter of the Missouri Compromise. He believed in constitutional approaches. So it's events on the ground that are going to force Lincoln's hand. It's going to change the circumstances when things change uh, for him. And so throughout the early months of 1861, a problem had been brewing uh, on this, in this area right here, Fort Sumter, uh, off the coast of South Carolina. It was a federal fort, uh, and it was in need of reinforcing. So, and reinforcing specifically in terms of food and supplies. I'm not talking about guns here, we're talking about food primarily, And Lincoln understood this. He knew this was a problem. Actually, James Buchanan had dealt with it. Uh, You can see here that there's an attempt to resupply in January, uh, total failure under the Buchanan administration. But Lincoln is going to see that this is a problem. And by April, it's going to be such a problem that it's an emergency. He needs to resupply the fort or else withdraw from the fort. So this is a real test, right, of those problems within the first inaugural Uh, and that Buchanan had refused to deal with. The question of, am I going to enforce the law? Am I going to hold federal property that exists uh, for federal purposes but is in, supposedly, this new nation? And so on April 12th, uh, a ship... A resupply ship is going to arrive at Fort uh, in, the, in Charleston Harbor, uh, attempting to resupply Fort Sumter. It's an unarmed ship, but immediately Confederates begin firing on it, and then they turn to Fort Sumter itself. They bombard the fort, uh, eventually forcing the United States to, to surrender there. And so because of this act of aggression, Lincoln believes he must respond. And so On April 15th, the following day, he is going to call up 75,000 volunteers to take on the Confederacy, or this rebellion. Uh, This is a very small drop in the bucket of how many people are going to fight in the Civil War and perish in the Civil War, Uh, but nonetheless, it triggers a real reaction from those Slaveholding states that had remained in the Union. So, Arkansas, Tennessee, North Carolina, and Virginia, who up to this point had some hope of compromise, determined that they agree with Buchanan. There's nothing in the Constitution that says that it is possible uh, to hold those states within the Union. And they're going to call secession conventions, whereas the earlier secession conventions they called had resulted in staying in the Union. These four states, this Upper South uh, Bloc, votes to leave the Union. The other states, Missouri, Kentucky, uh, Delaware, and Maryland, are not um, going to vote to leave the Union. And this is important because it's going to provide some problems for Lincoln going forward. But so we have Arkansas, Tennessee, North Carolina, and Virginia going into the Confederacy, uh, and as Lincoln would later say, and the war came. So now we're going to get into the war. We're going to get into the problems of the Civil War. Because once the Civil War did come, it's going to pose all kinds of constitutional problems for the United States. Because there's no real guidance in the Constitution on the problem of how to fight a war against your own people, right? Uh, People who are considered in your own nation. What should the conflict look like if you believe that secession is illegal, This is the rub. This is the issue that Lincoln and others in Washington are facing. Lincoln says secession is illegal. It violates the Constitution. It cannot be possible, right? That fundamentally means that these states had not left the Union because they had done something illegal, but they are not actually succeeding, according to Lincoln. They're going to fight this this war to keep them in the Union, but not acknowledge that they had actually left, to say that they remained in the Union. The folks in these states were in rebellion. They were not their own nation in this uh, particular formulation. And so the message of the Lincoln administration from the very beginning is that these states have not left the Union. They remain in the Union, but the people in them who are claiming to be part of the Confederacy are in rebellion. That's why in the 19th century, following the Civil War and during the Civil War, they're primarily calling this the War of the Rebellion, not a Civil War. This is the war of people who are rebelling against the United States. They had declared their wishes, right? They had declared this by saying they wanted to dissolve the Union. And so they have declared that they're in rebellion. But calling it a rebellion creates all kinds of problems because it forces Lincoln to consider what is the situation constitutionally in dealing with people who are in rebellion. And so what happens in the Civil War itself is a lot of worry about what is constitutional in a constitution that does not provide the answers to questions about secession, to questions about uh, conduct, to questions about war powers, to questions about what Lincoln is even able to do. And so this too becomes a period of constitutional creativity, where these folks are seriously trying to abide by the constitution, but are not entirely sure about what to do. And so they're constantly searching for the right answers for how things ought to work constitutionally. So in the next class, we're going to talk a little bit uh, about sort of the consequences of what happens in the war. But I want to set this up for you by talking about four key constitutional problems that the Lincoln administration and Congress are dealing with During the war, it's not the only series of constitutional problems, but these four pretty well capture sort of the kinds of conflicts that come from the problem of calling it a rebellion. So, first, if a person is in rebellion and captured by authorities, what is the United States government supposed to do with that person? Let's say somebody did that today, right? if they declared themselves to be in rebellion and they took up arms against the United States, what would you say they were committing? Lucas.
0: Treason.
1: Treason, right? This is generally the definition of treason. Maybe. So Article 3, Section 3 of the U.S. Constitution, uh, says exactly what treason meant, right? It exists in levying war against the United States or adhering to their enemies, giving them aid and comfort. This is a very definition of treason if you're saying these folks are in rebellion. And back in 1790, Congress had passed a law against treason that had held without modification up to this point in time that treason was punishable by death. Specifically hanging. Right? So you have this quandary, right, where folks in rebellion against the United States, you want to say that they are in rebellion, but that means that they are committing treason. And what do you do if you catch a prisoner, right? How do you deal with these combatants? This is really problematic, right? Are you going to execute every single member of the Confederacy that you are able to capture? What is going to happen to prisoners of war? This is also a pretty sticky practical matter, right? Because Lincoln wants to bring these states back into the Union to uh, recommit the United States to this particular foundation. And what is going to happen if you decide to summarily execute every single person who takes up arms against the United States. So Lincoln has to think creatively about how to handle this problem. He wants to insist that this is just a rebellion, that there is no Confederacy, because secession is illegal. It's not even a possibility. But at the same time, he wants to treat these folks uh, as enemy combatants, not as folks committing treason, because if they're committing treason, he will have to execute them. So Lincoln decides that he's going to thread this needle, and it is challenging. He's going to call them uh, belligerents, and he's going to extend belligerent rights under international law to Confederate armed forces. And Lincoln is going to place... Soldiers and officers of the rebel army on the foot of those, on the footing of those engaged in lawful war. So thinking about these folks as belligerents, not conceding that they are a nation, but conceding that they are belligerents under international law, meant that they could capture prisoners of war and not execute them. This is Lincoln's solution. This is one major problem, right, the question of what to do with these folks. It's going to last well into even uh, the late 19th century. How do we handle the people who were in rebellion against the United States? The 14th Amendment is going to have a lot to say about that. But it's not the only major problem. Another problem is what are we going to do about our military approach to defeating the Confederacy, So some of you may know that Winfield Scott, a great military hero at this point in time, had designed a plan for how to approach defeating the Confederacy that newspapers began to call the Anaconda Plan. It was called this because you can see that this line around the Confederacy sort of looks like a snake. They called it Scott's Great Snake uh, or the Anaconda Plan. And the idea was that you were going to blockade the coastline and the rivers so that confederates could not receive foodstuffs and goods and military supplies and then you were going to march your armies right into the heart of the confederacy to defeat them winfield scott is going to provide the very plan that the United States uses to defeat the Confederacy. Uh, He had predicted that it was not going to be quite as long. I think he said two to three years, right? Uh, And was going to require not even close to the number of men that they are uh, going to use. But this is exactly the plan that they are going to adopt. At the same time, this creates a serious problem. Because... Under international laws of war, a blockade, which is a key part of the Anaconda Anaconda Plan, indicates a state of war between nations, right? Because there have to be neutral ports, and other nations have to be able to remain neutral. So this in and of itself suggests that you are engaging with another nation. How do you blockade your own ports if you claim that they still belong to the United States? How do you do that? But this is war, and something needs to be done, and this is the best military plan. And so Lincoln determines that he is going to implement the blockade. He issues a blockade order on April 19th, 1861 indicating that there will be this uh, push in the coastline to make sure that the Confederacy cannot get the things that it needs. So the blockade is going to, again, pose a lot of questions about what is constitutional, what makes sense. Is this the right thing to do if you are going to call these folks uh, rebellious men, as opposed to a new nation. In the future, this is going to pose serious problems that are going to come in front of the Supreme Court. Here's one just small example uh, of this kind of issue coming before the Supreme Court in the prize cases, uh, which we are going to talk about on Thursday. But these cases are going to indicate the kinds of arguments that folks are dealing with in terms of the constitutionality of a blockade, against your own nation. Now the timing of this blockade order in April 1861 is going to highlight a third constitutional problem that the Lincoln administration was dealing with right after the firing on Fort Sumter. And that was that Congress was out of session, right? Not scheduled to have a new Congress until December 1861. To go back, right? We have the old lame duck Congress that started in December 1860. They're trying to work on compromise till March. Then they're gonna disperse and there's not meant to be another Congress that meets until December 1861. So Congress is out of session. What is Lincoln supposed to do when he does not have all the powers of fighting a war listed under the Constitution? This is really tricky, right? You rely on Congress, for example, to declare war. And if you declare war, as the president, are you violating the Constitution? This is a real question. So Lincoln is going to call a special session of Congress. They're going to meet in July 1861. uh, But they don't meet until July. And so Lincoln has several months where he has to figure out what to do. And one particular constitutional issue that comes up during these few months, is having to do with something called the writ of habeas corpus. How many of you have heard of the writ of habeas corpus before? We've heard of it, but it's kind of a, a tricky concept, right? So let's go over what it is, because uh, it's really something that we, as members of a free society, hold dear. We think it's really important. Writ of habeas corpus is a legal action that requires a person under arrest to be brought before a judge or into court to hear the charges against them, right? So the idea behind the writ is that a person cannot be detained for long periods of time without some sort of lawful reason to do so, to show why this detention is necessary. And if a person is detained, they have the right to ask what they are being detained for in front of a judge, They are allowed to hear the charges against them. The American version of this right came from English law, right? And this is, as in many cases, historically, this was a critical right that could only be suspended in times of war to protect the public engaged in hostilities, right? So this is the idea that the writ of habeas corpus can be suspended in a case in which it was really necessary in order to protect the public during war. In practice, what this meant to suspend the writ of habeas corpus was that a military or civilian official acting under orders from civilian authorities would detain persons for the protection of the public safety for an extended period of time without the requirement of needing to explain to them why they are being held. So when this is suspended, the authorities keep detainees in custody until the suspension ends, until the writ is reinstated, and this person has basically no way of challenging this. So you can see why this is something that is really tricky to do. People do not like to be detained without any kind of sense of why it is that they are being detained, uh, war or no war. So the Constitution takes this very seriously. We have in Article 1, Section 9, uh, the privilege of the writ of habeas corpus shall not be suspended, right? This is very strong language, shall not be suspended, unless unless when in cases of rebellion or invasion uh, or the public safety may require it. So this is really important uh, in terms of what is going to happen during the Civil War? There's a view that in wartime you can suspend the writ of habeas corpus and you also can do it in cases of rebellion. So it's not quite the problem that Lincoln uh, was facing in terms of the blockade uh, or in terms of enemy combatants. But there's another problem. Because this part of the Constitution is in Article One, Section Nine. What part of... The, what Branch of government does Article 1 of the Constitution tend to deal with? Go ahead, Ember. The legislative branch. The legislative branch, right? So the idea is that you are going to have, perhaps, the writ of habeas corpus only able to be suspended by Congress. Maybe. It doesn't say, right? The Constitution does not say Congress shall not suspend it, it just says it shall not be suspended. And what do you do when Congress is not in session and you're dealing with a rebellion? This is exactly Lincoln's problem. So Lincoln is faced with this in a very practical sense in April 1861. Because after the fall of Fort Sumter, regiments of Union troops begin to come to the United States from other places in the north to protect the capital. Capital is really important. It's also in the middle of slave states, right? You have Virginia, which has already seceded. And then you also have Maryland, which has not yet seceded, but it's a slaveholding state. So there's real concern that Maryland is going to go into the Confederacy. Real worry. And what happens if Maryland goes into the Confederacy? The capital is swallowed up. And what happens if Maryland is generally in rebellion? It's hard to get troops to Washington, D.C., And this is exactly what happens. During the early months uh, of the Civil War, you have people in Baltimore coming together and trying to prevent these troops from getting to Washington, D.C. They start riots, they destroy railroad lines, they make it really difficult for um, the troops to get to the United States, uh, to get to the Capitol. And so Lincoln decides, okay, I need to do something about this. And so he, he sends a letter to Winfield Scott, at this point general in chief of the army, uh, authorizing him to suspend the writ of habeas corpus at any point on or in the vicinity of the military line, which is now being used between the city of Philadelphia and the city of Washington. Those are the stipulations he sends to Winfield Scott. This is not without controversy. In fact, this becomes controversial almost immediately. And on Thursday, we're going to talk about the Merriman case, which comes from these riots in Baltimore and reaches Chief Justice Roger Taney, our favorite villain in this story, uh, on circuit in Maryland. And Tawney is going to be very much opposed to what Lincoln is doing, Uh, and so Lincoln is going to defend himself in his July 4th message to Congress. And I think, again, as as I said earlier, uh, Lincoln often gives us such a clear vision of what the problems are, of what's going on. Uh, Lincoln is sort of saying to us, okay, you know, the Constitution does not account for this moment, uh, and what should we do, Right? Uh, should we abide by all the laws, and then the country goes to pieces, and the union no longer exists, and the Constitution no longer exists, or is it better to break one law and maintain the union and the constitution that 's his sort of initial like well, maybe we should think about whether the Constitution is actually useful to this moment, and maybe it isn 't maybe it 's not going to help us maybe following the Constitution here will destroy our chances of bringing the seceded states back into the Union, and therefore the Union no longer exists. But after he puts that out there, Lincoln backs up. He also says, well, yeah, that's true, but also I don't think I did anything unconstitutional. Uh, So Lincoln is saying, look, the the, um, provision in the Constitution does not say who is in charge of suspending the writ, uh, and so he did not believe he had done anything wrong. He is making the constitutional justification for his actions. So this is sort of a, a third major issue, the writ of habeas corpus. It's going to continue on uh, really all the way to the 21st century. Still such an important piece of our um, constitutional history. But a final problem, and probably the most important problem, uh, that the Lincoln administration and Congress faced during the war was the question of slavery. So slavery is the cause of the war. And we know the stakes here, right? Uh, There is a belief that slavery should be eliminated among Republicans. And now that the Lower South is gone and the Upper South is gone from Congress, you have mostly people who want to get rid of slavery. That doesn't mean they want black equality. But it does mean that they're interested in the possibility of eliminating slavery and allowing this to happen in wartime, because the war provides the possibility for this kind of change. This is tricky, because Lincoln strongly believes that the Constitution protects slavery where it already exists. And again, we come back to that problem of, are the states in rebellion, or are they a separate nation? if these folks in these states are in rebellion, can we take their property, property in quotation marks? Can we mess with their institution of slavery? Probably not, right? This is the issue. If you are going to say that the Constitution does not allow uh, for these states to leave, then you probably need to acknowledge that slavery is going to remain in these states. This is what Lincoln thinks Uh, In the early months of 1861, when he's dealing with these problems. And it's going to crop up, right? Because enslaved people in huge numbers are taking advantage of the war to run away, to leave their enslavers, to leave their situations and go to Union lines. And so this is going to force the hand of many military officials. And I'll just give you one example On August 30th, 1860, oh, excuse me, in in early August, 1861, a Union general by the name of John C. Fremont, you might remember that name, John C. Fremont, the first Republican candidate for president in 1856, uh, he issues an order declaring martial law and freeing the enslaved people of Confederate activists in Missouri. So Fremont is over there trying to maintain Uh, Missouri in the Union, and he says, okay, well, one way I'm going to do this is to ensure that if Confederates, uh, if if folks are going to support the Confederacy, then they are going to lose their enslaved people. But on August 30th, Lincoln is going to rescind this order. He says, this is a problem constitutionally, but also it's going to alarm our Southern friends and turn them against us. So, Lincoln is dealing with a big issue here because he's dealing not only with the states that have left the Union or claim to have left the Union, but also slaveholding states that remain in the Union. He's not sure in August 1861 that it's a good idea to try to mess with this. Congress feels slightly differently. They had begun to take action against slavery in piecemeal ways, and they're going to continue this in 1861 and 1862. Uh, This is a quick overview of what Congress does in relationship to slavery. They're going to pass two confiscation acts. They're going to bar the return of enslaved people who had escaped from their enslavers. They're going to abolish slavery in Washington, D.C., with compensation to enslavers, and they are going to abolish slavery in the territories without compensation. But here again, the constitutional issues are a bit fuzzy. As we've discussed several times uh, this semester, anti-slavery folks in general like to make the argument that constitutionally enslaved persons were persons right? They were not property under the law, that the Constitution did not acknowledge them as property. But in order to issue, particularly the Confiscation Acts, they're going to have to make a slightly different argument, because they are saying that they are confiscating property of slaveholders who are in rebellion, right? So they are sort of changing their tune to adjust to the situation. Uh, Makes a lot of sense, right? Enslaved people were doing a lot of uh, the work on plantations, right, in these areas where uh, the enslavers had gone to fight, right, against the Union, and at, back home, the uh, enslaved people were actually allowing these farms to continue producing. So it was very helpful as a war measure to confiscate enslaved people, but thinking about it constitutionally, it's slightly different. Once Congress acts, Lincoln is also compelled to think more about how the war can provide the possibility for the end of slavery. And he thinks about this again in complicated constitutional ways. You know, like Lincoln is really committed to the Constitution. He does not want to violate the Constitution, but the Constitution does not provide all of the answers to the questions of what to do in this situation. And so He begins to think, well, you know, as a war measure in particular, uh, this might work. I might be able to end slavery if I think about this as a war measure. Again, because enslaved people are running away in large numbers, this is creating a situation in which Lincoln has to think about it. And so Lincoln and his administration begin to rely on the practicality of war to think about how to get rid of slavery. And so in September 1862, Lincoln issues the Preliminary Emancipation Proclamation in which he says on January 1st, if these people in rebellion have not returned to the Union, given up their arms, I will issue the Emancipation Proclamation. There will be freedom of enslaved people in Confederate-controlled territories. He says this in September. He's trying to give uh, some time for these folks in rebellion to uh, determine that they want to return to the Union, thinking maybe that this threat will be successful. In the meantime, Lincoln is thinking about how to create the possibilities for um, making this constitutional in the post-war period. In December 1862, he's going to uh, send his message to Congress where he offers several constitutional amendments, uh, including one that involves the colonization of freed people, um, hoping that there will be some sort of future in which the United States can accept the end of slavery. But Confederates don't do anything. And so January 1st, 1863, issues the Emancipation Proclamation. And again, he relies on what he considers to be his war powers to do this. Uh, As a result, you know, we think Emancipation Proclamation, like we got to be so excited about emancipation, but this is about the most uninspiring Emancipation Proclamation you can possibly imagine, right? Because really all it is is him saying like, you know, I'm I'm the commander-in-chief, so declaring this to be the case. There is no great, beautiful language about the importance of freedom. Instead, it is issued as a war measure. So Lincoln opposed slavery, but as his first inaugural indicated, he was very concerned about the constitutionality of acting in relationship to slavery. As the war progressed, and as enslaved people pushed for their own freedom, of course, they've been pushing for many years before this, but they're using the war to their advantage, Lincoln's hand is forced. And so he starts to think about how to deal with this constitutionally. By using his power as commander in chief, Lincoln is able to think about a constitutional solution uh, to this problem that may or may not work after the Civil War, right? And has to be qualified in various ways. So, the Emancipation Proclamation does not apply to the slaveholding states that remain in the Union. It does not apply to many areas that the Union had recaptured over the previous two years, right? So, parts of Louisiana and Tennessee and Virginia. Uh, West Virginia had also begun to separate at this point, and it didn't apply there. It applied to no places that remained in the Union. So the effect of this is that it is a piecemeal solution to a problem that Lincoln is engaging in because he believes he is hamstrung by the Constitution. It's also why Lincoln begins pushing. He actually abandons his uh, colonization strategy in uh, 1863, believes that it's important then to push for actual freedom. He starts to support the new 13th Amendment, Right? The 13th Amendment that we do have in the Constitution that has been fully ratified, uh, which ultimately passes both houses of Congress in 1865 uh, and is ratified by the states and is the very opposite of the original 13th Amendment. Neither slavery nor involuntary servitude except as punishment for crime an important exception, whereof the party shall have been duly convicted shall exist within the United States or any place subject to their jurisdiction, and that Congress will have the power to enforce this. So Lincoln believes that this is the way to maintain the constitutionality of what he has done in the Emancipation Proclamation. So we have four major issues here, right? We have the the issue of enemy combatants, we have the issue of the blockade, we have the issue of habeas corpus, and we have the issue of slavery. And all of these issues are gonna continue to be a problem for the Lincoln administration and then in the years following the Civil War. When we get to Reconstruction, folks thinking about the future of the American Constitution are going to consider each of these problems. But in general, they illustrate how much the Civil War was a constitutional crisis. It created a crisis both on what the Constitution was, whether it required all of these states to be in it, whether it was illegal to secede, and also how to conduct a war against your own people, right, when they are trying to rebel. How do you approach these constitutional problems when the Constitution does not give you easy answers, does not provide the answers that you need in order to appropriately fight the war? And so this is what the Lincoln administration and Congress are going to have been dealing with over the course of the war, and it's going to have really important ramifications going forward. And that's what we're going to talk about on Thursday.
0: Thanks for listening to C-SPAN's Lectures in History podcast. Have you listened to our Book Notes Plus podcast? Taking the concept from Brian Lamb's long-running Book Notes TV program, the podcast offers listeners more books and authors. BookNotes Plus features a mix of new interviews with authors and historians and some old favorites from the archives. Find it wherever you listen to podcasts.